Let us pray. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. We ask that you will send your spirit now to give us a deeper insight, encouragement, faith and hope through the proclamation of the Easter Gospel. Amen. And the reading this morning almost seems like a step backward because we're going back to a scene of the crucifixion. And yet, in this lesson on the crucifixion, we are going to learn more about real life and what it means now and in the hereafter. So with that, I invite you to listen to the Word of God as it comes to us from the 23rd chapter of Luke, verses 33 through 49. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn into two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee 
stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. It is truly ironic that at the cross, the place of great death, also is the place of great life. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. And you may recall several weeks ago I preached on much of the same passage, but from a a different perspective. And so I think this passage has some fresh things to say to us this morning. There's a drama written of the last days of Jesus by the author Charles Rand Kennedy, and it's called The Terrible Meek. And a character named the captain says, Something has happened here upon this hill today. It is something that will shake all the empires and kingdoms of this world unto the dust. The earth is his. The earth is theirs. And they made it. The meek, the terrible meek, the fierce agonizing meek, are about to enter into their inheritance. And so, across the centuries, people have looked to Calvary because of the cross. Something happened there that made such a tremendous difference in the course of the world's history. Before the cross, if we are to look at the state of most of the world... Women had no rights. Children were disposable. There were more slaves than free people. And there was no clear revelation of God. After the cross, we now have a perfect revelation of God. We have a situation which is far from perfect and yet it seems generally accepted in most societies that women should be respected and should be honored and should be treated equally. It is generally accepted, again, there are shortcomings, but it is generally accepted, I think, that children should be cherished and loved and protected. And most importantly, though, The souls of men and women are set free. Because finally, finally, there is the key to absolute life, both in this life and in the life to come. And so when we reflect upon the cross, there are so many things that we can hear and we can feel and we can understand. And at first, we hear the cry of Jesus. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, what do these words say? They first show an intercession for the undeserving. In this first word from the cross, we see that the thoughts of Jesus are turned away from himself and towards his enemies. And think he's in terrible agony, he has been tortured. He has been humiliated. He is now dying in agony on the cross. 
and he thinks of others. He thinks of those who have put him in that position. He, well, who could he be referring to? He could be referring, of course, to Pilate, the one who issued the order to crucify him. He could be talking about the religious leaders who were the instigators of the crime. He could be talking to the Roman soldiers who carried out the crime. They nailed him to the cross. He could be talking about the the ignorant, the misled, the feverish multitudes who cheered on his crucifixion, the people who called for the release of the criminal Barabbas and for the death of Jesus. All of these people were undeserving of God's regard, God's grace, God's mercy. And yet, Christ intercedes for them. It is so vital that we remember this and that we thank God from the bottom of our hearts that he does not wait until we are deserving before he intercedes for us. Remember, we are entirely undeserving. And yet, God through Christ intercedes for us. And this leads us to understand that the cry of Jesus from the cross reveals the boundless love of God. For Christ to be able to pray for those responsible for his death revealed God's love as it has never been revealed before or since. Christ reveals God's love that is offered to those whom no one else loves. And the crowd saw the thieves hanging next to Christ as malefactors, as criminals, who were to be executed, but Christ saw them as people, as human beings to be loved and saved, if at all possible. And you may recall in my previous message, one thief seems to have gone to his death unrepentant and making demands of Jesus. But the other thief was repentant. The other thief did understand the situation and begged Christ for mercy, and he received it. And so at the cross we hear the cry of Jesus. And at the cross also, though, we feel the temptation to compromise. When you are when your back is up against the wall or up against the cross, when all seems lost, the temptation to compromise is huge. The people looked at him. And the rulers derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the Son of God. And Matthew 27, 42 says, Let him now come down for the cross, from the cross, and we will believe him. And so, as I said, if ever the temptation to compromise was overwhelming, it had to be overwhelming for Jesus at that time being on the cross. You remember that he had been tempted previously by Satan in the wilderness, and that was a hard temptation to withstand because he was hungry, and he was out all by himself. He had nothing to eat. But this, 
this temptation, this incredible agony that could have been ended with a simple word or action. Well, who could have withstood that? And people have felt the same temptation to compromise throughout church history, to to renounce their faith, to give in to pressure, to torture. That's true in part of the world today, where the church is still persecuted. It's It's true in this country, too. Not that we have to worry about actual persecution, but the church desperately wants to remain relevant. The church wants to keep the doors open. And so there is the constant temptation to compromise and compromise and compromise in order to make the faith relevant to people today. And I don't think we should say that we should be against all compromise. I mean, there are things that are relatively unimportant, I think, that may be human customs that have formed over the years that we can rightfully compromise on. But how far do we go? And that's meant to be an honest question. I mean, but it's a constant debate within the church. How far do we go in compromising? Um, I, I have a wonderful resource that helped me prepare this message today. And some of the examples would be pretty expected. It, book's written from a conservative perspective. So he says there's a temptation to compromise on issues of same-sex marriages and homosexuality. Uh, for some reason, he brings up the legalization of marijuana, which I hadn't realized was a pressing issue in the church. Maybe it is. Although, I mean, if I were to speak kind of just tongue-in-cheek... Um, if we had more marijuana in the church, people may not, might not be in a rush to leave after an hour. So there's something to be said for that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, those are the issues he brings up. But there are other issues too. Uh, many ways in which the church is trying to compromise in order to survive. And I don't have the answers on all of those things. I do say that if we compromise on things like the Trinity and the dual nature of Christ as being God and man... And salvation through Christ alone, well, yes, if we compromise on those things, we are indeed taking the easy way and coming down from the cross in order to somehow be relevant. And indeed, we feel temptation when our personal welfare is at stake, don't we? Now, in this case, the very life of Christ was involved. To answer the call and to come down from the cross would save his life. Recall, he was only 33 years old when he was on the cross. Who wants to die at that age if he can avoid it? I mean, I'm 48. I'm way beyond 33 now. And I don't particularly want to give up my life tomorrow or today. Jesus was going to turn a deaf ear to the call that would save his life. And sometimes we feel the call to compromise in our own lives by going along with the crowd if the crowd is engaged in immoral behavior or if people in the crowd, say, make racist or anti-Semitic jokes and we don't object to that. I've been in situations like that where I haven't spoken up like I should. Um, Or maybe you don't report all your income on your taxes and Lord knows, after I filled out my recent taxes, that was a temptation because of my tax bill. It may have been for you, too. 
There are so many things that appeal to us to compromise. And another issue is that we might want to compromise when people make fun of us. When people put peer pressure on us. It says here in Luke that the rulers of the people derided Jesus. They mocked him. And most of us can take a lot of things, but ridicule is really hard. And when we take, say, a Christian stand openly on something, we open ourselves to the possibility that others will make fun of us, that they will deride us, that we will be seen as prudes, perhaps, or killjoys, or whatever. And again, I'm not saying this to you in terms of condemning anybody's choices or lecturing you. I've been in those situations and I have gone along with things that a small voice in me said I really shouldn't go along with. But I wanted to be popular. I wanted people to accept me. I wanted to have friends. What a human temptation. And then, we may be pressured to compromise because compromising can promise appealing results. In Matthew's Gospel, it was said to Jesus, come down from the cross and we will believe. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning and the end of Christ's ministry on earth, he was called to compromise. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, Satan said to him, Turn these stones into bread. And at the close of Christ's ministry, Peter said, Anything but not the cross. Didn't, didn't Christ want people to follow him? I mean, at some points he had thousands of people following him. And yet when he told the full truth about himself and his mission and what God expected from him and from them... So many people fell away. Yes, Christ did want people to follow him. But only by the way of the cross. And I think that relates back to what I just said about the church's temptation of compromising in our culture today. The church wants people to be involved. The church wants people to follow the church The church wants the sanctuaries to be filled. The church wants the programs to run well. The church wants to have balanced budgets or surpluses. The church wants to feel secure. But at what price comes security? At what price comes success? A question we must always, I think, ask ourselves. Now, at the cross, we also witness the crisis of decision. One of the thieves cursed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself yourself and us. But the other thief said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so in this crisis, this crisis of decision that the cross really does throw up before us, Well, there are two ways, I think, that we can go. We can question the claims of Christ. If you are the Christ, 
And really, until a person, until you, are willing to accept Christ as Messiah, then you are saying, I don't believe you enough to trust my soul to you. In other words, an if is going to be a terrible stumbling block to your full relationship with Jesus Christ. But the other option, the other choice, is to make an open confession. As the repentant thief said, we are justly condemned. We are receiving the penalty for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so the thief not only confessed his guilt, which is something we all have to do, but he also confessed his belief that Christ was all that he claimed to be. You can tell by the way a man dies by how he lived or how he has lived. And this thief saw how Christ died. And as a result, his heart was changed and he was compelled to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And finally, we see what we might call the contract of salvation. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And you see, that is our part of the contract. Our part is to admit our need. The thief did so openly. That is repentance. Our part is also to believe that Jesus Christ is all that he claims to be. That is faith. And our part is to take that leap of faith. This is what the thief did when he said, remember me. He was saying to Jesus, live or die, sink or swim, I am dying trusting Jesus. Can you have that faith? If you are in a terrifying moment, if your car is out of control on a cliff and about to go over, if you're trapped in a fire and there's no way out, are you able to say, I am dying trusting Jesus? And so that is our part of the contract. And here now is God's part of the contract. Today you shall be with me in paradise. The world said about this thief, this man is irredeemable, he is incorrigible, he is unreformable, he is worthless, and so therefore crucify him. But Christ says, he is a man made in the image of God, and so redeem him. Christ accepts us. He is indeed our maker. And so God's part in this contract is to save. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise is that we are saved. And when we are saved, we have that incredible assurance that we will be with Jesus Christ in paradise for all eternity.
And so, brothers and sisters, even at that place of death, that place of suffering, the place of the cross, we see how well life is truly open to us. Salvation is opened to all who come to faith because of what happened at the cross. It is at the cross that we hear the cry of Jesus, that we may feel the temptation to compromise, that we confront the crisis of our decision, and it is where we see the contract of salvation. Brothers and sisters, will you not enter into the contract of salvation today? Your part of the contract is to admit your need, to believe that Christ is all that he claims to be, and to take your leap of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.